We deviated a little bit from our plan uh, last week as we looked at a different passage, and we had a few baptisms last week, so we spent our time talking about uh, baptism together. But we're returning this morning to the letters of John, as we've been there for many weeks. I don't know how many. I lost count. Uh, Coming up on 30 weeks, I believe. but, you know, we're almost done, and you can tell because we're going through verse 10 of 3 John this morning, which means uh, my, my plan is that we only have one more week in 3 John, and there's no more. There's no 4th John. And so we have to be done with the letters of John next week. At least that's my plan right now. And, uh, but as soon as we finish the letters of John, we are, yes, finally, going back to the book of Isaiah. So if you were with us, there are many of you who were not, but some time ago, we started walking through the book of Isaiah together, and we got a little over halfway, and we changed over to the Gospel of John, and then we did Philippians, then we did the letters of John, and now we are returning to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to finish that out together, okay? So uh, just be prepared. Uh, Maybe go through and read the book of Isaiah so we can kind of regain our context as we start to look at that together again. But this morning, we're in 3 John, beginning in verse 5. So let's look at our text. It says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on a journey in a manner worthy of God. For... They have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. All right, we'll stop there this morning. So as uh, we began 3 John, uh, Jimmy did that introductory sermon there uh, to 3 John, and and we learned quite a bit already. Uh, It's the elder John writing to the beloved Gaius. And uh, he loves him, and he prays that all may go well with him in every area of his life, physically, certainly, but more, more specifically and more importantly, spiritually. You remember that? Then he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We remember this as well. How could you forget it? How could you forget the fact that John is overjoyed when he hears that his children are walking in love and in truth? This is what John wants for his people. This is what he wants. Gaius is a believer living somewhere in Asia Minor. Uh, That's pretty general, right? That's pretty generic. Uh, For the last time, let's look at our beloved map. Here we have Asia Minor, and uh, those little red dots are uh, the, well, uh, one of them is the island of Patmos, which you can see out in the water. But then the others, the, the seven are the seven churches to the, that we find in the book of Revelation. So seven dominant or primary churches uh, in Asia Minor. 
And one of them, which is very significant to us, is Ephesus, and I've labeled it, because in all likelihood, the evidence shows that John was living in Ephesus at this time as he wrote these letters. So um, Gaius would have been living somewhere around in this area uh, as he identifies himself as uh, the old man, again, the elder to the beloved Gaius, he has no reason to identify himself by name because Gaius knows him well. So we know that he knows Gaius well. Uh, we know that he's a believer. We know that there's a former association there. They have connections and that he's living somewhere in Asia Minor near John. And uh, what is exactly, what, what is Gaius doing here that's, that's caused some kind of stir? Um, he said in verse 3, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. So what happened there? John is at his church, and a group of guys who had been traveling encountered Gaius. And uh, they found out that Gaius was doing well, and he was doing everything that he should be doing, and he welcomed them in. And these guys left uh, Gaius's house and went back to John, and they reported to John, Gaius is all right. Gaius is doing good. We like Gaius. He is being very welcoming uh, to believers, and we just wanted you to know. So uh, what prompted John then to write a letter to Gaius? What's the issue? Um, the subtitle of today's sermon, where it's workers for the truth, but, you know, sometimes it, titling a sermon, if you've ever done it, that, that can be a challenge. I, I normally take my titles from the text itself. If you've never, I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not, but generally my titles come from the text. Um, this one I, I wanted to call something like, uh, don't be like Diotrephes, Okay. Be like Gaius. You know, we all want to be like Gaius. We don't want to be like Diotrephes. Um, but th that's really kind of what's happening here is there's a tension between two guys. And the tension is between Gaius and Diotrephes. And we're introduced to that in our text this morning. What is this tension? And um, of what significance or bearing or weight might it have to a church some 2,000 years later? Um, that's kind of, kind of questions we want to know. Why was the letter written? Uh, how do we understand it? And of what significance might that be to a church who is gathered some 2,000 years later? Uh, we want to know those things. What is the Lord telling us through this text? So let's, let's look at it in some detail, okay? Let's look at first verses 5 and 6. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So as I, as I read this, and uh, uh, I, was, I was looking at, I, I always have a side-by-side -side comparison. This is relevant, I, I promise. Um, when, I'm, when I'm studying, I always, I can link together the English and Greek text, and they kind of scroll together. But anyway, I, I noticed a particular word that was used here, and it's uh, sunergoi, and there was a coffee shop in, in Louisville called Sunergos, and uh, that Amanda and I uh, used to go to, and... Uh, I never, I, see, this was when I first went to Bible college. I had, I had no clue what this was. A coffee shop called Sunergos. That's weird. It sounds kind of cultish. I don't know what that is. Um, but it's, it's, it's a Greek word. And uh, in our text, it means fellow workers. And uh, this really centers on the idea of our text this morning, that we might be fellow workers, Sunergoi, fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers for the truth. He writes of Gaius that he's being faithful in all of his efforts to strangers. 
strangers. Strangers as they are. There's another interesting uh, concept here because we're talking about hospitality. Uh, and the word for hospitality is a combination of, of two words. And the combination is friend and stranger. So in Greek, uh, the word for hospitality is uh, friend, stranger, stranger friend. Uh, a stranger who has been welcomed in as a friend, right? That's, that's hospitality. Um, but you get the idea there, right? To make a stranger a friend. Some believe uh, that this Gaius is the Gaius from Romans 16. And you might, you might hear why. Just let me read what it says about this Gaius. Romans 16, 23. Gaius, who is a host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, our beloved Quartus, greet you. I just love the names. Erastus, I've told you before, I love the name Erastus. I'm going to name someone or something Erastus in my future. Um, Gaius, though, in this particular situation, um, is welcoming and hosting a church in his home. And so it sounds a lot like this Gaius, doesn't it? Someone who's welcoming to the brothers. And, uh, you know, so some people think it might be the same Gaius, although it seems like he lived in a different location. Here's a summary of the situation. Gaius had previously taken in a group of believers. He cared for them for a while as they were passing through. They went back to their home church where John is. They told them about the support they received from Gaius. And now another group has just arrived at Gaius's doorstep. This time, the travelers have a letter with them from John, the letter that we're reading. And it seems as though there was a particular person tasked with delivering this letter, and his name is Demetrius, and you're going to meet him in verse 12. These men were believers who were not known to Gaius personally, but he did have a connection with them through John. Do you see it? So they are strangers, yes, but imagine a group of people arriving at your door, okay? I'm gone. I don't know where I am. I'm gone somewhere. And I've been gone for a while. You haven't had communication with me, okay? I'm still alive. I don't know where I am, though. I'm on his travels. And then all of a sudden, a group of people shows up at your door. But they have a letter, a letter from me. And the letter says, uh, hey, uh, Jimmy, uh, you don't know these guys. They're strangers. But I'm giving you my stamp of approval. I, I promise they're, they're believers. They're trustworthy guys. And uh, I, I hope that, that my stamp on them is meaningful to you. So please keep up the work that you've been doing and welcome these guys into your home as well. You get the idea, right? You get what's happening here? Okay, so that's what Third John is. It is a letter delivered by the hands of some travelers who have showed up on Gaius' doorstep. But what does John want them to know? What does John want Gaius to know? According to Roman custom, and we, we covered this a few weeks back, but a person who is invited into your home at this period of time was really uh, someone that you laid claim of. It's more that, see, when I say hospitality, you think, oh, I'm going I'm to host someone at my home for dinner or something, right? Or uh, I'm going to have a, come over, we'll have a meal, and I'm going to be hospitable. Well, that's, you know, th right. Okay, that's, that's the way we use the word hospitality, but it carried more weight at this time in history. When you invited someone over to your home at this time, you were taking claim of that person as yourself. They were an extension of yourself. Whatever they did, it was as if you did it to them. 
if you had a particular standing or citizenship or something like that, your guests were welcome to everything that you had while they were with you. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So you basically welcomed people in as an extension of yourself, which was pretty weighty, right? So you just welcome in everybody? There were two types of people traveling at this time that are significant to us. People who were supporting error and people who were supporting truth. People arrive at your doorstep and you have to say, what? What type of person is this? Because we are told in Second uh, John 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So there's a warning. If someone arrives at your doorstep and they are not according to the truth, not living for the truth, not supporting the truth, don't welcome them in to show this kind of hospitality within our culture. It means something. You see, so our context of hospitality and welcoming in is somewhat culturally bound, and we have to make a distinction there, is that there was something happening at that time in history that was meaningful and weighty when you welcomed someone in that is not necessarily part of our context today. So, there is something called the Didache, and you may or may not be familiar with this document, but it was written at the end of the first century. When were the letters of John written? At the end of the first century. So, there is a, a document as well, and it's called the Didache. It's called the teaching uh, or the doctrine. And it's, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a manual of sorts of Christian, basic Christian teaching and like kind of a manual of here's some basic things of how we operate as Christians. Does that make sense? It's not a very long document. Why am I bringing this up? Because there are particular instructions about welcoming people into your home in this way in the Didache. And I just kind of want to read. It's just a couple of lines. Listen to what it says, though. This was a Christian manual of behavior, how we ought to operate as a church, uh, written at the end of the first century. Just listen to what it says. Everyone who comes in the name of the Lord is to be welcomed. But then examine him, and you will find out, for you will have insight what is true and what is false. If the one who comes to you is merely passing through, assist him as much as you can, but he must not stay with you for more than two or, if necessary, three days. Interesting, right? Um, so what was happening here? It, they're passing through, you can tell. This is what's happening. They are traveling, and you remember you primarily traveled by foot. You didn't want to stay in the inns. They were disgusting. So you wanted to stay with someone you knew. They didn't know anybody there, but hey, we have a connection through John. John knows you. John knows me. Hey, here's a letter. I promise I know John. I promise I stand for the truth. Will you let us in? John is saying, remain faithful to these brothers and continue doing the work that you were doing. Now, look back at our text in light of all that. Verses five and six. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. What is he saying? He's saying, complete this work. Welcome them in, take them in as brothers, and complete it, finish it off, by sending them out in a manner worthy of God. Here's the thing. It's evident, isn't it, that there was a serious 
an intentional effort put into the formation of an unwavering and undefiled truth community. An unwavering and undefiled truth community. And it's a community that's marked by love for one another. It's a faithful thing you do for all these brothers. I've heard of your love. I heard that you're walking in the truth. Keep going. Why is he trying to encourage him so much? We're going to see that here in just a second. Before we do, let's just make some application to what's being said. Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Do you hear it? Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So this is a short section from Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. He talks about this idea because it's difficult sometimes, isn't it, when we read in Scripture something that's kind of detached from our culture and we wonder how do we apply that concept today because that's not really happening much today, so what do I do with that? We, sometimes we ask that, right? We should. Jesus lays out some better, uh, maybe some more generic principles regarding this concept. Okay? This is a specific um, way of applying what Jesus is, is saying generally in Matthew 25. Just listen and, and you'll get it. You're familiar with the passage, so uh, maybe my reading of it is sufficient. Listen to what it says. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, to, uh, come you who are blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him and say, well, it seems like they're saying, I think you have the wrong person. I don't remember doing that to you, Lord. So they say, the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when, when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? When, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We are welcomed into the family of God, adopted as co-heirs with Christ. When we care for people we are caring for God's children. And this kind of hospitable behavior is what is being expressed that if you truly love the children of God, then you will be caring for them in this way. God, you will be caring for them. Now, we should boil it down a little bit, right? Here's the question to ask yourself. Has this very simple concept impacted me in such a way that I actually reach out and care for other believers? Or am I one of those that wait around to be cared for? Generally, we lean towards one or the other. 
We're the kind of person that we go, we go, we give, we give, we call, we call. In the modern world, we text, we text, right? But there are some who are on the receiving side primarily who wait for the call, wait for the text, sit around, and want to be served. We need to see both sides of this. Are we entitled to be served? If we feel a sense of entitlement to be served, then that's not a humble attitude of Christ, right? If you have the attitude where I want to serve, that is the attitude of Christ, for he came not to be served, but to serve, right? And so it should just be an overriding desire in us that continues to develop and change over time that we want to help the children of God. In what way? In any way that we can, in every way that we can. We all have our failings with this. I do not do this perfectly, far from it. But I want to do better. Why? To love the children of God because I, I love God and I love his children and I want to care for them. Is, is this the kind of attitude that is flowing out from your heart? You look around you today and you see people and you say, I want to care for you. I want to, I want to make sure you're okay. I want to, anything you might need, is, is, is there anything I can do for you? Can I help you in any way? Now, if that begins to be our heart, I think we've started to understand the heart of Gaius. But as I said, we ought to be like Gaius and we ought to not be like Diotrephes. Let's learn a little bit about him. We'll begin in verse 7. They've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, what's being said here has a context. They've gone out for the sake of the name. I'm telling you that they have, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, they are dependent upon the church's support. Therefore, we ought to support people like these. Why does he include the ought to? Because he was being told that he should not. Gaius was being told that he should not support them. John was saying, no, no, you should support them. It should be said that the people you support become an extension of yourself. Do you know that to be true? The things you support, the people you support, the concepts you support become an extension of yourself. You attach yourself to what you support, right? Isn't that true? It's, it's almost your stamp of approval on this here. Unless you give it with some kind of caveat, right? Unless you give a, a warning, right? Uh, this is good, but let me tell you this. That's why it's so difficult, I'll just be honest with you, to recommend books. Oh, it's so hard to recommend books. Listen, if I recommend a book to you, it's not because I believe everything that's in it. I'll be hard-pressed to find a book that I believe absolutely everything in it, um, unless it's the Bible. So, you know, it's, it's hard to put your full stamp of approval on a book, but listen, on a person. It's hard, isn't it? John was going out of his way to put his stamp of approval on a person. Imagine if John the Apostle said your name and said, my stamp of approval is on them. Do you like, I don't know about that, John. I, I, I feel a weight and a burden about you saying to everybody else that they should trust me. I don't even trust myself. What a weighty thing that would be, right? But the people that we 
support, the things we support become an extension of ourself. I read this earlier, but just listen to it. If anyone comes to you, this is 2 John 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Why? Why don't do that? For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So if you support them, it's as if you're doing it yourself. But likewise, if we support the right thing, it's as if we're doing it ourselves, which is what's being said here, that we might become fellow workers for the truth. Support them on their way, and it's like you're doing it with them. You're fellow workers in that with them. But if you support the wrong thing, you're a fellow worker with them in error, in wickedness, in evil. Be careful then what you support. There is a sense, a strong sense here that we need to be careful about those things and those people that we support. Come down to verse nine. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So when I come, I'm gonna bring up what he's doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against us and not even content with that. He didn't even stop there. He refuses to welcome in those brothers and he also stops those who want to and he puts them out of the church. So Gaius, or, uh, Gaius is wanting to welcome people into the church or welcome them into his own home. Who does not like that? Diatrophies. What does Diatrophies want to do to Gaius? Kick him out of the church. Do you see it? He wants to get rid of all those people who are supporting John and not supporting me. I think it's a better translation here. There's, um, the ESV is wording this, Diotrephes who likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. The word authority is not, is not in the text. The, the concept, I get it, is there. But um, I, the translation that might be better is Diotrephes who desires to be first among them does not welcome us. Diotrephes, who desires to be first among them, does not welcome us. Now, there are some character issues with Diotrephes. And there was a serious tension developing between Diotrephes and Gaius. Diotrephes had a character that was flawed. And it caused him to act in rebellion to the Lord and that rebellion had great impact on the church. Do you see how much conflict this stirred up within the church? One man's rebellion has an impact on the community that he's involved in. He rejected apostolic authority and rested on his own authority. Doesn't matter what, the, what it says. Doesn't matter what that letter says. It's the same as you saying, it doesn't matter what it says in Third John. I'm not doing that. and it caused conflict in the church. Now, Diotrephes obviously had a lot going for him because he raised up in power, right? He has a say-so, doesn't he? He's kicking people out of the church. Who can do that? Well, evidently, Diotrephes can. For whatever reason, he has power in the church, and what he's doing with his power is keeping his power. There is no one who can say anything that has any more authority than me. Even John, I reject him. I reject all people who support him. I'm the one in charge. Why? Because I want to be on top. I want to be first among all of us. I want to be the spiritual one. I want to be the right one. I'm going to elevate myself and anyone who disagrees with me, kicking you out of the church. 
that's not the kind of leader that we want, <laughs> okay? It's also not the kind of person that we want to be. It's also not the kind of heart, the kind of character that we need to have. We don't need to have this prideful, power-hungry heart like Diotrephes, but instead we ought to be humble and wanting to give and serve like Gaius. Do you see the big contrast between these two guys? Gaius and Diotrephes, who are we going to be? Philippians 2, 3 through 5 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Was Diotrephes doing that? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, being concerned for the interests of others. Was Diotrephes doing that? Are you doing that? Do you see that this is the whole point? This is not about someone else. This is about you. Am I caring for other people? Am I supporting other people? Do I have a long way to go in this? Do I walk, walk around or wait around? I'm someone to serve me, someone to care for me. That's what I want. You serve me. Or are we ready and willing to come in and among God's people and to care for them, to love them and support them in whatever way that we can. Listen, if everybody had this heart, we would, we would be overflowing with people who are cared for, right? Because if everybody shares this heart of care, then everybody's gonna be cared for. There's more than enough people in this room to care for all the people in this room. This is not the job of the church. You get what I'm saying by that? It's like, well, I come and I attend the church service, but then it's, the church's job, you know, the people we pay, they need to be caring for the people. Unfortunately, this becomes a mindset in churches as if it's a, a business. And it's like, we pay you, do your job. Care for people, that's your job. <laughs> no, that, that is what I'm to do as a believer. You too. That's what we're to do as believers. We're all to care for one another. This is not some hierarchy that only certain people care for people. We're all to go out of our way to care for people and there's not one of us doing it perfectly. But we ought to have a heart that says, I want to serve, I want to give, I want to support. We should not have the heart of diatrophies that says, I want to be on top and whatever gets in my way, I'm gonna demolish it, right? Very different character qualities. And by the way, I, I, I made a mention of this, but, you know, when we act in rebellion to that and we attempt to elevate ourselves, don't you realize the conflict it creates inside the church? Have you ever been part of a conflict in a church because either you or someone else was attempting to elevate themselves in authority and pride and entitlement? It creates problems, because that's not how the church is meant to operate. The church is meant to be a reflection of Christ and have his humility. And I, I wanna serve, I want to love the people of God rather than I am here to be served by you. Elevate me to a position that I want and it doesn't care what gets in my way, I want my position. 
two different ways here. Gaius or Diotrephes. He's going to go on to say, don't imitate this evil, but imitate good. But we're going to get to that next week. It's all tied together. But this morning we're taking the Lord's Supper. And so I'd just like to transition for a moment and, and look at 1 Corinthians 11. If you would just turn there with me, I just want to spend a moment looking at this text. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. If you would turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11. And I just want you to see the amazing parallel between the text that we just read and the text that we're about to read from Paul to the church in Corinth. It is an incredible parallel of some character issues, character flaws that were causing divisions in the church. So just listen. Beginning in verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I can't. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When we gather together as the people of God, as we have this morning, it should be for our betterment. It should be for the better, not for the worse. Unfortunately, our failings sometimes create a, t- it creates a circumstance where when we gather, it actually is to our detriment and not to our benefit. And it's due to rebellion. But he says, when you come together, you're actually harming one another, not helping one another. So, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. But there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, another goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Do you see an attitude here of pride and of arrogance? And uh, when they would come together, it's a little different than what, you know, what we do now, the practicalities of it. They would bring their own food, their own meals. And those people who had a lot of money would bring a, a lot of food and, and delicacies and fine wines and, you know, things like this. And they would bring them and they were living in luxury at their table. And then you look over and there's this other, this family that doesn't have anything. And they could care less. And it creates division among the people. Oh, that's hurtful, isn't it? So he says, when you come together and this is your attitude that you want to elevate yourself and not serve one another, if you come together and that's your heart and you take the Lord's Supper, it's not even the Lord's Supper at that point. It is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. It's just a meal. So our attitude, our character, our motivation matters when we take the Lord's Supper. It's not just a meal. It's not just elements. It's not just a cracker and juice. It's, don't you see, it's all about your heart's disposition toward what these things symbolize. So he says, here's, here's how you should understand the Lord's Supper then. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he, he, uh, when he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup 
after supper, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Does literally eating and drinking proclaim the Lord's death? Paul says, no. Don't you realize that when you eat and you drink with the wrong attitude, it's not proclaiming anything but your own sinfulness. And it makes a mockery of the gospel. So when you take the Lord's Supper, it's all about Christ. Do this in remembrance of me, that is Jesus. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes to you. You see, it's outside of us. The focus in the Lord's Supper is not here. It's outside of us. It's all about the Lord, his finished work. Focus on Christ. And it's an amazing thing when the focus is off of or is on Christ, it, it becomes off of you, which changes your mentality, doesn't it, completely? It puts life into perspective when we put Christ in his rightful place. Isn't that right? The Lord's Supper does that for us. You need to be sure to have Christ in his rightful place in your heart this morning because if you simply eat and drink without doing that, it is not even the Lord's Supper that you're taking. Last bit of instruction, beginning in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat, and eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So there we have it. There is something that ought to be happening when we take the Lord's Supper. We are looking at Christ and putting him in his rightful place, remembering his finished work, but then also proclaiming his death until he comes. And so as I've said, there is a looking back at what Christ did, there is a looking forward at what Christ will do, and there is a looking inward and examining ourselves. It's back, it's forward, and it's inward. It's in us. If you're not looking all three places, you're not taking the Lord's Supper appropriately. We're looking at the finished work of Christ and what he will do, yes. But we must also put judgment on ourselves. We ought to filter our lives. We have to examine our lives and say, how do I measure up against the gospel today? What is my heart today? What are my motives today? What is my character today? How am I viewing Christ today? Do I have my life in the right perspective today? Have I been serving and loving God's people the right way? And if we judge ourselves and we call sin, sin in our life and we confess that to him, this is what he wants from us. A heart of repentance, a heart of faith, a heart of truth, a heart of love. This is when we take the Lord's Supper. This is when the gospel is a celebration to us that regardless of my sinfulness, yet even then Christ died for me. I have just evaluated myself and found myself sinful. And yet, here I am to proclaim and celebrate what Christ has done for me, a sinner.
and it's an amazing meal of celebration to the Lord. It is a symbolic event showing that we belong entirely to him and he is our entire substance. He is our life, he is our breath, he is our everything. And so when we eat, we proclaim all these things and we examine ourselves. I'm gonna pray for us this morning and uh, I, I hope that where you've been led through this text is to an inward examination of yourself and your character, your own heart this morning, your disposition towards one another and our disposition toward God himself. How do I measure up this morning? What should you do practically? You should examine your heart, confess those things to God, call sin, sin, that's what confession is. Repent of those things, admit to God that they were not the right things, not the right thoughts, not the right actions. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to us. He is faithful to his children, but he calls us to a life of examination and we're to do that this morning together. So take a time of prayer and examine yourself and think about the finished work of Christ. Think about all that we have to celebrate, those who have been blessed with all the blessings in the heavenly places. Those are ours in Christ and celebrate the great truth we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. So I'm gonna pray, and then Katie's gonna come and play some uh, music for us, and during that time, uh, we have uh, an amount of time here to just pray and uh, to talk to the Lord, and whenever it seems right to you, uh, you can come and, and take of the bread and the juice, and uh, anytime, we're gonna sing a song after that as well, anytime. Uh, during these last two songs, is, it would be an appropriate time for you to come and take that, okay? But let me pray for us, and we'll uh, celebrate this time together.